Psalm 41, for the director of music, a psalm of David. The psalmist writes, Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lays. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up, that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, tonight we come to the end of the Heidelberg Catechism, and not just the end of its teaching on the Lord's Prayer, but the end of the entire Catechism. This is the culmination and ending of our series on the Lord's Prayer, and also of our four-year journey each fall through a different section of the Catechism. Maybe that's something that you've noticed. Maybe not, but when I started here at Community CRC, I was told that every fall we do a series on what it means to be the church. And my thought was immediately, well, then we're preaching on the Heidelberg Catechism because the Catechism does exactly that, it teaches us what it means to be the church through these four pillars of Christian worship, through faith, grace, obedience, and prayer, the creed, the sacraments, the law, and the Lord's Prayer. These four elements of Christian worship teach us what it means to worship the triune God and to live as his people. And I know of no better guide than the Heidelberg Catechism to lead us through God's word to unfold this formative curriculum. I made a joke this morning that the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism must have run out of Lord's Days and that's why they smashed all of these things together at the end, why they crammed the whole end of the Lord's Prayer together, and that was kind of unfair of me. I haven't found uh, any evidence about why they um, put certain things together and split other things apart, but I actually imagine that the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism wrestled with these things a great deal, especially 
the end of the Lord's Prayer here, whether to give the doxology and the amen, the ending of the Lord's Prayer, its own Lord's Day or not. Because the issue, as some of you may be aware, is that the ending of the Lord's Prayer that we say together in church, in Protestant churches at least, uh, isn't actually in the Bible. (laughs) And it definitely wasn't, uh, almost definitely, was not part of how Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer to his disciples. In both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, the prayer simply ends with the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, period. No doxology, no amen. The traditional ending of the prayer that we recite together, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, isn't included in manuscripts of the Gospels until well into the fourth century. And it's kind of humorous to me because this is actually one of the places, one of the rare places, I think, where Protestants uh, held on to tradition, where Catholics went back to the Bible. Uh, I don't know how many of you have visited a Catholic Mass, but one of the things that you'll notice and that might throw you off is that when they pray the Lord's Prayer together as a congregation, it ends with the words, and do not let us fall into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it's not until much later on in the liturgy of the Mass that the congregation sometimes, sometimes just the priest, recites the traditional words of the doxology that we recite as the ending of the Lord's Prayer. And this was a change that was made to the the liturgy of the Catholic Mass after the Protestant Reformation's rallying cry to the church to return to God's word in Scripture. So why do we still say it? If it's not in the Bible, if our Catholic brothers and sisters are comfortable ending the prayer where Jesus ends it, why do we still include this human addition to the prayer of our Lord? The easy answer, of course, is that it's tradition. It's the way that we've always done it. We say the prayer this way because we've always said the prayer this way. But but why? Why? I want to get to the why behind the easy answer. Why have we always said this prayer this way? And why, even after we figured out that these weren't the original words of Scripture, weren't the original words of Christ, which the Reformers also knew that fact, why did Protestant churches keep these words? This doxology, of course, way predates the Protestant Reformation. It goes back way to the early church. And some scholars have suggested that early Christians, you know, early Christians probably found the ending of the Lord's Prayer, as it appears in the Gospels, too depressing. That it's too much of a downer to end the central prayer of the Christian faith with the word evil. Much better to end it with the word amen. And so these scholars argue that the early church added this doxology and the word amen to the end of the prayer so that it would end on a high note. But I don't find that argument particularly compelling because literally hundreds of millions of Christians around the world to this day end the prayer where the Gospels end it. 
and don't seem to be bothered by that too much, don't seem to suffer higher rates of depression than Protestants do. And I hope that we've demonstrated through our preaching in the morning services that these, these petitions of the Lord's Prayer, even the petitions to forgive our sins and deliver us from evil, are actually encouraging and freeing to Christians when, when we pray these prayers. So personally, I find that argument somewhat lacking. Scholars who have studied the history of Christian liturgy note that the Lord's Prayer, almost from its earliest beginnings, appears in Christian, uh, Christian liturgy and literature with some sort of congregational response. Not always the doxology that we have, but some sort of congregational response. For the first couple hundred years of the Christian faith, these responses were various. Some churches simply responded to the Lord's Prayer with a congregational amen. Others had various iterations of the doxology attributing to God all praise and majesty and honor and glory and power, the kingdom of heaven, or some combination of all the above. The doxology in its current form is also actually pretty early, first attributed in the writings of Tertullian in the early 2nd century, very early in the history of the church, even though it doesn't become the global ecumenical standard for another hundred years or so. And I don't think it's hard for us to see why the early Christians, when they worshiped together, developed these human responses based on scripture, but these human congregational responses to this divine prayer, because the Lord's Prayer, in a lot of ways, demands a response. We have to respond to the Lord's Prayer. And similar outbursts of praise and response to the word and promises of God have rich biblical precedent. In many of the Psalms, including Psalm 41, which we read tonight, after the poet lays out their struggles and hopes and fears before God, they often end the Psalm with a declaration of trust in God's faithfulness. In Paul's letters, after Paul tells the churches about the struggles that he's facing in his travels and in his ministry, he often bursts out into hymnic praise to God. The book of Revelation, as Pastor Carl read in the call to worship, is interrupted throughout, almost punctuated with these exclamation points, spontaneous declarations of praise to the one true God, because God's word demands a response. And after declaring these words of the Lord's Prayer, what better response can we give than doxology, than praise, than glory to God? For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours forever and ever. Amen. This is our response of praise. This is our declaration of dependence on the God who rules over all. In the face of the powers and principalities of darkness in this world, the giant forces of war and market and media that try to control our thoughts and actions, this is our cry of witness to all creation. That the God who hears and answers our prayers is the one true God. To whom belong all nations and power and glory, both now and forevermore. Amen? Amen.
Amen. That is a strange little word. It's kind of an amazing word. The late Fred Kloster, former professor of theology at Calvin Seminary, my father studied under him. Uh, he devoted his life to studying the Heidelberg Catechism and has this great set of commentaries on the Heidelberg Catechism. He points out in his commentary that the word amen is probably the most ecumenical word in the whole world. The word amen comes from the Hebrew. It's transliterated into Latin and Greek, amen, amen. And through the Greek and Latin and the Hebrew, it has made its way into almost all the languages of the world. If you worship with Christians anywhere in the world, from Navajo Nation to Sri Lanka to South Korea to Nigeria, you might not understand a word that they're saying in their worship services, but you will know when they end their prayers because they all end their prayers with this little word, Amen. It's kind of an amazing thing. But this little word, I think we've lost something about this word. I bet if you ask most people in our church what the word Amen means, they'll tell you that it means that the prayer or the sermon is over. Certainly most of our children think that, right? The word amen means prayer time is over, it's time to eat, right? But amen is more than just a period at the end of a prayer or at the end of a sermon. Amen is a declaration of truth. That's literally what it means, truth. In the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, you'll see sometimes that Jesus starts off a saying by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. And in the Greek, that's amen, amen, lego humin. Amen, 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 I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. That's literally what it means. Truth. So be it. Right on. Yes. Or as the kids say, word. At its heart, amen is a congregational affirmation. It's a response. It shows that we hear and affirm and agree with the prayer. That we hear, affirm, and agree with God's word. Will Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas, two American theologians, uh, reflect a bit on the word amen in their book on the Lord's Prayer. And they talk about how the word amen almost changes meaning when it's declared spontaneously rather than formally as at the end. The, the two of them tell a story in their book on the Lord's Prayer about how they were visiting a church together and they were a bit caught off guard when in the middle of the sermon, a lady sitting behind them yelled out, Amen, preacher! It caught them off guard because it wasn't that kind of congregation. It wasn't a call and response church that they were at. But in their reflection on this interruption of their 
quiet listening to the sermon, they pointed out that in our culture, so often we hear the word amen spoken by the person who is speaking, by the leader at the front, that we so rarely say it as the response that it was intended to be. We don't hear amen that much as a congregational response anymore, unless it's part of a formal thing, right? Like all God's people say, amen. And this lady shouting amen in the middle of the sermon reminded them very vividly what they were there to do. They were there to listen for the voice of God in the words of the message. They were there to hear God's grace spoken to his people. And if that's what a sermon is, if a sermon is God's word for his people, if a prayer is our declaration of trust and dependence on God, then why don't we respond more with these spontaneous outbursts of affirmation and agreement? What more can we do? How can we not reply? Amen. So be it. Truth. Right on. Yes. This word of affirmation reminds us of an important truth. At the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism's teaching on prayer, you might remember it asks the question, what kind of prayer is pleasing to God? And the answer is first, we must pray from the heart. To no other than the one true God revealed to us in his word, asking for everything God has commanded us to ask for. Second, we must fully recognize our need and our misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. And third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation. Even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord. That is what God promises us in his word. So the Catechism teaches us that prayer that pleases God has these three characteristics. It is heartfelt and true. It is humble and honest. And it comes from a place of trust in the promises of God. And this little word, amen, brings us back to that full circle. Because when we say amen, when we say so be it, when we say, let it be so, when we say yes to God's promises as we end our prayers, it is a reminder that the God that we pray to is faithful, honest, and trustworthy. As the Catechism puts it in the question and answer that we read tonight, it is even more sure that God listens to our prayers than that we truly desire what we pray for. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians comforts the church with these words, which I think are appropriate for us as we close out this series on prayer. He writes, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes 
in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And so, sisters and brothers, let us praise our God through these words through our praises that declare our dependence on the God who deserves all glory and power, to the God who holds the nations in the palm of his hand, let the amen sound from his people again. Gladly forever adore him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Yes. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we are humbled and amazed at your great love for us. That no matter how many promises you make, all of them are yes in Christ. And so we praise you, oh, Lord, our God. All glory and honor and power and majesty are yours. The kingdom and the power and the glory are yours forever and ever, forever and ever, both now and forevermore to eternity. Oh, Lord, our God, we say yes. We say yes. We say true. We say amen because of your greatness because of your goodness, because of your love. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that you are so trustworthy, so trustworthy that it is even more certain, even more true that you hear and answer our prayers than that we really mean what we pray. And so, O oh Lord, bless us with your Holy Spirit that we may pray to you from our hearts, asking for everything that you have given, that you have commanded us to ask you for, recognizing our sin and misery so that we humbly come into the presence of your majesty, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, but trusting in your faithfulness, in your love, in your grace. Because we know that you are the God who keeps his promises. And so we say, amen. <laughs>